0: Uh, welcome to the podcast today we are so lucky to have all the way from the gorgeous state of kentucky tyler from red river rescue and covington fire department right tyler yes yep covington fire department now welcome to the podcast
1: well thanks mark thanks for having me humble to be here especially with some of the guests that you've had in the past i kind of feel uh unworthy if you will
0: no, never, and don't say that. Shaggy and Micah, right now, their heads are just swelling. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they deserve it. They're they're pioneers in our industry. So,
0: right And uh, What do you got? Uh, tell the viewer, the listener, a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Red River Fire, all that sort of stuff.
1: So, uh, Tyler Sipes, I'm from the Covington. I work at the Covington Fire Department, which is a suburban or is an urban city uh, suburb of the city of Cincinnati. It's just on this side of the Ohio river. So it's in Kentucky. Um, I've been a fireman for a career fireman for 12 years now. I've been involved with special operations since 2013, 14, um, spent four years assigned to a heavy rescue outside of the city of Louisville before, unfortunately economic downturn had to cut the company and, you know, life happens in a lateral to a new spot and, uh, love where I'm at. Um, great fire department, great folks, uh, fun city to work in. Um, Red River Rescue is a company we started a couple of years ago. It's uh, a group of friends that we've either worked together or acquaintances and uh, we're a part of the local SAR team working uh, in the Red River Gorge area of Kentucky. And um, we just decided to get together and, you know, start putting on classes that we felt filled gaps that we found in classes that we had taken uh, locally and just try to um, bridge the gaps and be more comprehensive about things that were taught and not allow certain things to get skimmed over and just try to put out content and classes that we would want to go and take and provide for our, uh, our end users. Um, that's been going on about a year. Uh, we had done co- All of us had done contract teaching for other companies and we just just kind of decided to do our own thing. So in a nutshell, that's uh that's who taller is
0: right on. And uh today I think what we're gonna be chatting about a little bit about grimp, a little bit about crap on your harness some flare pieces, and a little bit about breaking edges and what you should have. And so your team first year this year at Grimp Day and more. And I want to start there. I mean, everybody that's listened to me spout off knows I'm fairly into the Grimp stuff, and I I you know, highly supportive of it. I'm not trying to temper your opinion on it, but what were your thoughts? Like first year coming in first year that we had two American teams in there. And like, what are your thoughts about it?
1: Grim's an unbelievable experience. Um, Not only for the camaraderie, getting to travel to new places and do really cool things, but the ability to push your limits Pressure test yourself, find your own weaknesses, find things that you need to work on yourself, find strengths you may or may not know that you had, and uh, meet people from around the world. Um, You know, Grimp was – I think you've hit them all before. I mean, it's it's a great way to meet new people, to look over left or right of you when you're on the line trying to work through a problem or scenario – and see something you just it it hits you like wow I've never thought of that before wow that's an that's a great way to look at this and you know it it really again to say pressure test but it puts you in spots that you may not have been in before and you have to figure out how to work through the problems as an individual as a team um it's just a great thing man the guys over in the more max and his team they put on a great event um I really enjoyed the uh Open room at, at the end of the at the end of each day's competition where you guys could get together with other competitors, hash things out over a beer, talk about how things went with them, what they did, how what you did. It, it was just uh it was just a really cool thing, and I hope we really hope that we get invited to come back next year.
0: Yeah, I mean that first year is always such an eye opening experience, right? You come from like us a fire department background, you go over there and you look left and right, you see people doing stuff, and you're just like wow, I don't even know if they would allow me to do that where I'm from.
1: <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, you, you know, a lot of things, not knowing um, what to bring. And I think ultimately we brought far too much gear and we found that out on day one where we had to pack it um, 10 miles up and down hills and, you know, just really trying to hone in the things that you need. And it'll lead us into what we're going to talk about later is what do you need? What don't you need? Um, things that you must have things like ah oh, it's a luxury item but do i really need it and it's just you know when the the not be oh can i even do that like things that you see that are common practices in other parts of the world uh are completely foreign to the things that we do basically like you said in the fire service world it's just it's um it's crazy and it's really awesome and some of the, some of the coolest people you'll ever meet are just walking around and They're just normal people and you just get to go have a beer with them and chop it up and and learn. I I got the privilege to sit into uh, in the lobby there at the hotel and just listen to two guys and uh, from one from the Netherlands, one from Poland and just talk about things that I didn't even know were existed. And just being a fly on the wall and listening to conversations was really cool.
0: Yeah. And uh, on a total tangent, shout out to Max today. It's his birthday.
1: It is Max's birthday. I saw that on Facebook a little while
0: ago. Yeah, there you go. Um, And it's funny, like you talk about going to a new location and what have you. Jeff from our team, Jeff Duncan, never been to Europe before. Um, He had been on a trip with us down in the States. I think that's the only time he'd been out of Canada before. So this was like the second time and it was over in Europe. And like you say, like he's walking around every day, like just staring at the architecture. And then it's like, well, I get to go rappel off of that castle or that citadel next. Right.
1: Well, Jeff wasn't the only one. The only time I'd left uh, the United States before our trip to Belgium was uh, my honeymoon when I went to Jamaica. So I was the exact same boat. And I'm just walking around going, wow, this building is older than my country. It's
0: insane. <laughs> and I'm going to drill a hole into it and repel off
1: of it. Yeah. Right. So it was just like, and everybody's so nice. Um, any questions you had, they got you answers. They were, you know, they were hospitable. The, 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 the hotel was amazing. The city is beautiful. And that's Citadel. Um, you know, you can watch all the videos from highlights and grim days have passed. But until you get there and look at it and walk around, it's, uh, it's something to
0: behold and something to see. It really is. Right on. So I guess that pushes us right into kind of question one gear. You said, wow, we brought a lot of stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing there. And I know the feeling we've done that as well. And uh, now we pack it down pretty tight, but what were things that you brought that were must-haves and what were things that you brought that you're like, you know what, there's something else we could have used instead.
1: You know, I think one thing is we brought, for example, like we had, we traveled with four, four clutches. We ended up uh, CMC was awesome enough to give us those uh, laser etched two clutches. So we just had so much, Redundant, not to use the with doubles and triples and quadruples of things that we didn't need because we didn't know. You know, even though grip has been going on for 16 years, there's still not a ton of information out there. And that's it, and partially that's by design, I think. You know, they, they don't want you to know what you're getting into before you get there. So it's kind of got that real factor. There's not that game planning. Everybody's on the same page when they get there of not knowing anything and you're just going to go figure it out, ready break. Um, you know we we i talked to you before i talked to the elevated guys that had been there before you know we tried to get as much information as we could as possible and you know we kind of took the kitchen sink approach you know um and we brought a lot of stuff i think we brought you know we brought six clutches did we need six clutches absolutely not you know and ultimately um I packed mine around in a bag for three days and I don't think I ever used it. I ended up, I used my rig because it's lighter. I think I can get around uh, on rope a little bit better myself uh, with the rig than I can the clutch, but it's a great topside device. It's still a great repel device, but it's just, it's so much heavy and it takes up a little bit more real estate on your harness. Yeah,
0: and it's interesting. I mean, I have found a lot of people kind of make the same comment where it's like, I'm bringing a personal descender and, and a clutch can be a personal descender. I don't want to say that it isn't, but you know, the, the device I'm like, you know, a spark, a serious, a rig, an ID, whatever that happens to be. And then there's always team gear. And then it's, you know, how many clutches or MPDs or maestros or whatever you want to use for that, you know, attention, a highline or those types of things. But you're right. That is a conversation point that just keeps going and going and going.
1: Was yeah. there anything?
0: Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. I was disagreeing with you. Yeah. Is there anything you brought that's like, man, that's money. I have to use that every time going forward.
1: Grillion. what a great yeah. device that is. I mean, you can you, you you can build mechanical advantages to to move, you know, load small distances. You can use it quickly as a fall pro line. You can position yourself to work. You can use this as an attachment point to a patient. There's just so many different uses that you can use with that device. And I I, I, felt, I found myself using that over and over and over again, which is something I knew that I would do because you use it all the time anyway, but it, that, it turned out to be more valuable
0: than I thought it was going to be. And any de- piece of equipment, and I'm not saying that it's a bad piece of equipment, but just in the the context around Grimp, is there anything that you just wouldn't bring again?
1: Uh, my Aztec kit, I didn't use it once. I carried it around, you know, it's a great device. It does a lot of things, but I ended up not using it at all. It just sat in the bottom of my bag, um, and it never, and I never used it. I know there was a couple of times it was used on uh, by our topside guys or guys that weren't breaking the edge uh, for different things, whether pre-tensioning an anchor or back tying or whatever. But I, that's something I wouldn't bring again because I felt that was one of the things we had. You know, I think we had four of them, and. I never used mine and never needed it. So that's probably something that if we get to go back this year, I won't make the trip. Not saying it's a bad piece of device. Like you said, it's a wonderful piece of equipment. It's just something I didn't need.
0: Right. On. And is there anything that you saw over there that you're like, I got to get one of those for the next time I go? Yeah, there were so many cool, like
1: especially walking around the vendor hall, like the, the some of the products like the Skylitex got out, like the new spark and the, the Sirius and, those things are super cool. And there's just a lot of different, you know, I think at least in North America, at least in the United States, I don't know about how you feel in Canada, but CMC is the king, all of everything, especially in the fire service. Like, you know, how many times have you heard that the fire chief says you guys can get anything as long as it comes out of the CMC catalog, but there's so many different manufacturers out there and there's so much cool kit that I didn't know existed. And it's just one of those things that I've just dove into and really looking at, um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of innovative pieces of equipment out there. I thought the, um, was it, the, the Rafa anchor, that little parapet anchor, I thought that was really cool. Um, I hadn't seen one of those or had the chance to play with it. You know, the, um, and, and, you know, the Skylitech booth was really cool. I really like some of the harnesses that they, they're, they're designing and coming out the lightweight, ergonomically friendly, and really um, referencing the end user in the developmental process.
0: Right on. Well, I'm glad to hear that you had a good time. I'm glad to hear that you're wanting to go back. It's, uh, it's always good to have different people to compete with. And it sounds so weird. I mean, Canada and the U S is pretty close together yet. I think it's been elevated you and peak. I I don't remember another U S team there.
1: Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think that's right. I think Ronin, you know, the, the four teams from North America have been Ronin, peak elevated in us. Yeah.
0: And, yeah. Uh, Um. no, the, there's, a uh, team out of quebec that's competed a couple of times okay yeah rescue odyssey there um but yeah there's a, there hasn't been a lot of north american teams over there
1: no and it's it was um you, you know the, the first couple of, the first day we were just kind of it's kind of weird because we were the new kids on the block nobody knew who we were we're a new company but by the end of it man we had made so many friends and you know there's there's people I talk to almost on a weekly basis or even a monthly basis that I met in Belgium that we just kind of keep in touch with. And the rescue community is really small once you really get into it and everybody's friendly and we're all off the common goal of just learning, passing knowledge and just being better and more efficient for, our, for our, our patients or our, our employers or whoever it is at the, at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. And like you say, it is a big family. I know my wife came over to see some friends and, I mean, we came to Namur via Rotterdam and Mechelen and a few other places. As we're just hitting people that we've known over these years, now go so head to their house for a drink or head over to their training location and do some work with them for the day or train with them. So it's been a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I think that was I think that was one of my favorite parts was getting to meet new people and have those conversations. It was super cool. I mean, don't get me wrong, the event was awesome. Some of the 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 venues and being able to get us all like you know they think they had what four different tower cranes this past year that they were got to where they got an entire construction site that they got us on that was really cool the friar getting out in the, the wilderness part of it and then that was it a hundred meter face and just doing all that different the cool things and the uh, the biggest state down below and the views of the river valley I mean it was all a, a wonderful thing but I think if I had to pick one thing it was the camaraderie and meeting new people that I enjoyed the most
0: right on so start off with some of the questions big question you get we get as well why do you carry so much stuff on your harness (laughs) flare pieces why do you have so many flare pieces (laughs) we want to define flare pieces for the
1: listener out there uh you know it's something i'm trying to define too but i'm guessing um at least in the fire service world you know you know everything's brought in a truck and in a bag and you know at least in my fire department, we don't build out harness sets. It's just here's a harness and everything else is in a bag. And you know, I think it's a kind of a foreign concept to at least the fire service world of having set amount of things or purposely driven uh reasons for having different pieces of equipment on your harness every time you put it on, or leaving it together, or every time you break an edge, having X, Y, and Z. And I just think it's kind of a foreign concept that. It will may be maybe one of those things that you don't know what you don't know that it, it the advantage or the advantages of having certain things with you at all times makes things more efficient, makes things more expedient, and just uh it, it cuts down on time and, and really can probably help eliminate problems going forward that
0: you may not foresee. Okay. So what would be I'll try to keep it simple, you know, five, if maybe seven, what like what would be the minimum type of equipment you would want to see on a harness with your rescuer and is your rescuer and your rigor carrying different things? So there's two kinds of questions there. So I, I would say, yes,
1: I would say I think your rigor needs to have a different kit or different loadout than what the guy you're sending over the edge. To me, I think the guy going over the edge needs to have a way to get up and a way to get down. So if something gets jammed up topside or there's a problem whatever, they need to have the ability to get themselves out of that situation. I think, the you know, autonomy on rope, being able to get over to another rope set if it's lower to you or climb yourself back up top. Or if you're doing a top base or bottom base rescue, you have the ability to get on a fixed set and get yourself back down if there's
0: nobody else to do it. So from that point of view, then we're talking some sort of personal descender, and some sort of ascent gear, whether that be handle descender, chest descender, a couple of prussics, whatever you want to do there.
1: Yeah. So, you know, um, personally, I, you know, we talked about it just a minute ago. I'm I'm a huge fan of the rig as a personal descender. Um, I just, I think it feeds well. I think it's easy to operate. And, you know, a big thing is it takes up, it doesn't take up a ton of, a ton of real estate. Not saying that there aren't, a ton of great descenders out there. That's just the one that I've been exposed to the most and have the most most familiar and comf- and being most comfortable with to do those things. Um, I, I think so. For me, I carry that, and then I also have, you know, like you said, I don't use a handle descender. I have a basic on the end of a lanyard that I use. I think it just fits in my hand um, fits in my hand well, and you know. So I think this is the third time I've said it. It it takes it doesn't take up as much real estate on your harness. Uh, if you got to go into a, a tighter area, you know, i.e., um, the dam scenario for you guys at grimp a couple of years ago, where you had to fit through the, you were standing on beams and you had to go between uh, slabs of concrete, you know, the, you know, real estate and uh, getting caught on things, or this past year going into the tube, um, I had a piece of cord hanging on uh, my harness and it got jammed up on the top of that tube when I went inverted to go down and make my rescue connections. So. The, the real estate and bulk has to have a conversation. Has to have, um, has to have a vote in what we just do too. But also, whether it's like you said, a hand ascender, a foot ascender, or a couple of prusiks, you I think you have to have something to be able to go both directions.
0: And I think also you get some weight issues in there. Like Absolutely. the guy on rope, your rescuer, how much weight do you want to be carrying with you? I and mean, when you talk about things like a basic and things like that, yeah, it doesn't seem like a lot. But every ounce counts.
1: Absolutely. Especially if you're doing any amount of ascending. Like if you're ascending more than just, you know, a few feet or, you know, 10 to 15 feet, you know, you start getting into decent amount of climbs, weight and fatigue start becoming a huge problem.
0: And that's something I don't think we see much over here. We don't do a lot of climbing in the North American fire service of rope. But when you get over there, I mean, to pump out a 100-foot a climb is not really out of the question on any given day
1: (laughs) yeah no absolutely you know i've early on in 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 my rope career it's wasn't that long ago probably eight or nine years ago i it they showed me how to do it in my original rope tech class i think i climbed 15 feet and then down climbed on a set of prussics and then i never thought about it again because we 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 hardly ever do it but i think it especially now getting into rope access and sprat um it's an essential skill, and it's especially an essential skill as a somebody breaking the edge because it it's a, it's a very viable option to get yourself out of a bad spot if you find yourself in one.
0: Do you think the fire service kind of takes a shortcut or cheats the the student or the firefighter on rope by teaching climbing the way we do in that particular service opposed to a rope access style? I think.
1: I don't know if I'd say we cheat them, but I think I don't think we do it enough justice. I think, you know, like you said, the North American Fire Service is predominantly a top down. Rescue model, we're building systems to lower than haul or lower all the way to the ground. And I think if we did a better job or pushed climbing uh, in having people the ability. I think the biggest thing that I learned going through rope access was being more comfortable on the rope. Hey, this isn't that big of a deal. We're going to go climb 20 feet. Oh, okay. Well, that's, you know, we do this, this, and this, and we'll just just hump it out real quick. But I think, I think we do a disservice because we're just check, we get into the, the mode of checking JPRs without thinking or just doing it because they say we have to. And maybe not because of the necessity, thinking that it's a necessity, but the more time I spend on rope, the more I find myself climbing uh, as an easy access. I mean, you think about it; it's it's much easier to set up a drop set and get to something, rappel down, or r- climb up from the bottom than it is to build a, a complete lower haul system and start throwing in artificial directionals and other types of systems. You know, when you could easily accomplish something by getting somebody above, dropping two ropes, climbing up to whatever it is, and then just doing a, a, a rescue from a center descent and lowering them down to the ground.
0: Fair enough. Um, <clears throat> what, when you talk about, uh, we talked about a rescuer for a rigger, what do you think for differences on the equipment, on the harness that a rigger should have opposed to a rescuer?
1: Uh, you know, it it depends. I think it depends on your environment. If you are, you know, if if you're in an industrial setting as, a, as somebody going as a rescuer going over the edge, I'm probably not going to bring a bunch of wire slings with me to anchor to, you know, the, the abundance of anchors in a lot of industrial settings. But whereas a rigger may, hey, your job is to get this anchor in place. Now, if they have those wire slings or other type of heavy straps, you know, you've got the Texoras, you got the Rhino slings, or even get into the Dynemas. Those guys can really cut down on a lot of time by having multiple options to anchor instead of having to do some elaborate knot tying or, you know, web system or what what, a, what a multi-point anchoring or whatever. If they, So I think that you got to tailor what you're bringing to what your job is going to be. You, you, does that make sense
0: no absolutely and i think background has a lot to do with it as well i've seen a fire guy and a rope access guy both very skilled in their separate you know fields rigging the fire guy was the guy in charge of the scenario and the rope access guy was his lead rigger the fire guy goes i want you to use a high strength tie off over there the rope access guy picks up two like metal straps, right like metal slings steel slings and goes why can't I just use these, right? Like, right. you want me right. to wrap that how many times? But it's it's the training they come from; it's the background they're used to, right?
1: Absolutely, and I, I think I think one thing. And this may be going a little off topic. I think we need to, at least as rope practitioners, we need to venture ourselves away from our own industries from time to time, because, like you said. Hey, go put a high strength tie off over there on that tree when you could easily accomplish an equally strong anchor with one of these manufactured rigging straps or anchor straps, or like you said, a wire strop or a rhino slinger, insert product here, but you don't know what you don't know. And if you don't, if you just become focused in your own area, you're never going to learn that there's an entire world out there of people who do this for a living in different ways. You know i think you've talked about i think it was with uh craig before you're talking about single rope technique we think it's absolutely insane in the, the the north american fire service to go single rope but you know arborists they do it all the time over there in uh the grim style in french belgium and, and france they they have that risk matrix to where they will go to a single rope for rapid access but you know if you if you walk into i'm sure your firehouse and, and mine, be like hey i'm gonna go do this rappel on a single rope they're going to look at you like you got three eyes, but if you don't understand the concepts and the principles behind it, you'll never know that that could be a viable option.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you're right. It's it's that cross pollination of different rope, you know, disciplines being brought into one and taking things out of each.
1: Absolutely, you know, I I think I learned I, I learned a ton just by following you know, different Facebook groups of different industries, whether it's the arb industry, the rope access industry, or just diving into, you know, their standards and what they do and their best practices. And, you know, there's so many similarities, but yet there's so many differences in how we accomplish the same goal.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's good to get that cross training. And like you say, I think Grimp does that a lot and brings those different industries together. Absolutely. But, you know, also,
1: so to get back to your original question, um, you know, I think the rigor, or at least the topside guy, probably would bring more of that team kit, if that may, it, it like we referenced earlier, like maybe a, a clutch because it has that high efficiency pulley in it, or a maestro or an MPD or whatever. It may be a little bit heavier, but they have hopefully an easier path to where they're going. They can get the, the they're going to be near the bags. So they can use those maybe heavier, more robust pieces of equipment for what they're, use their the strengths of those pieces of equipment to a better uh more and a better position to build those systems you know if i'm just going down to make the connections i don't need to probably i'm not going to say you never will but you're probably not going to need to build that you know long haul system where you that that high efficiency pulley is going to make things uh better in the long run where i could just build like a wreck like you said a rad system to get me up a foot or two or get them up just far enough to get them off of their system I can do that with a rig even with its inefficiency as a device whereas it it serves better up top and the light the, the 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 weight isn't as big of an issue if you will.
0: Yeah, people probably don't realize that our first couple of years in Grimp we ran with we still run a lot with the card 45 the Arc'teryx pack but our riggers are running card 60s. Yeah. And we, like you said, we've slimmed down over the years, but the first few years, that was as much gear that those riggers brought. They were almost, uh, you know, it was almost a punishment position because you were carrying an extra 25 liters of gear almost or 15 liters of gear over everybody else in the the team.
1: Yeah, we we rolled with the the Cross Pro 54s and they were all loaded. And I I have a lot of sympathy for your riggers carrying those 60 liter packs. I mean, they got especially day one where we were having to hump from scenario to scenario, to scenario, uphills, downhills, um, some steep, you know, it just, it got to where it was, it, it, it was, it was brutal. It was a beat down. And I think that was partially by design uh by the Grim team to simulate wilderness rescues and having to hump gear.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And um, I thought it was brilliant. I mean, I hated them in the moment, but looking back, um I, I it was brilliant because you were gassed and you were tired and you, had to still figure out a way to make, to, to keep your heart rate down and to manage your physiological being as well as, you know, your, your mental being. So it, it was a, it was a great, great design by those guys. Um, but yeah, I think the kits are different. Um, I think that their kids probably going to be more robust and they're going to have the heavier team gear, you know, more pulleys, you know, cause they're doing a lot more top side. They may have to do more redirects. They may have to do, move anchors and do, do they have a different job set and they need to tailor their kit to that
0: right on um several students ask opinions about what are must-have items on your harness when breaking an edge like so we're we talking a 90 degree edge specifically here for helping uh, with that or just getting over the edge i think just
1: getting over the edge um i think you know one we talked about being able to get up and to get down right so we we've already talked about having a system to be able to ascend and a personal descent device to get down. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of things, like if you're going over an edge to, to an hanging victim, you're going to have to tailor your kit to, Hey, we're going to have to have a figure out a way to get two points of connection onto this person. Whether you take some sort of lanyard with, you know, a carabiner, two carabiners, on, one on each end, you hook it into them and you into you or onto your system. Or if it's a, a cow's tail with possibly like a, a, a Petzl, uh progress adjust where you can, hook it to them, cinch you down to where you need to be. But you, you gotta, I think you have to think about one again, back to the rigor versus rescuer. You gotta have, what's my job. And what am I, what am I, what are my, what, what are my benchmarks for success? And how do I, what do I need to have to accomplish that mission? So I also don't think it's a bad thing to bring a couple extra carabiners because you never know. Murphy's always going to have his say. In rescue. I think you would agree with that. Um, it's not always going to be cut and dry and you're going to have to have a way to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to be able to adjust and make things happen when you're there. Because, you know, you talk about just one 90 degree edge, how many, you know, at least where we are in the Red River Gorge, there's multiple places and and an abundance of places where multiple pitches and multiple edges are a thing. And being able to get gear that you don't have is going to be much more of an endeavor than just, lowering something down 40 or 50 feet over a hard edge. So you got to think what could be and what couldn't. So I, you know, I like to bring, it's a very unscientific method of how I came to this number, but it was <laughs> carrying five extra carabiners on my harness, on the, the right side of my harness. And I, I arrived at that number by, all right, I'm going to th- start with two. Well, then I would end up needing extra carabiners, especially with the SAR team when we're having to hump things in so, and then I went to three or four, but then finally I got to five and it was like, well, I haven't had to ask for more carabiners or go back to my bag. Five seems to be the number where I'm not going to run into an issue. And, you know, with, alum, with aluminum carabiners, five carabiners isn't a ton of weight. You know, if you start getting into these the, the steel carabiners and FPAG rated stuff where the fire service lives, five carabiners is a lot of weight. <laughs>
0: It's interesting you say that because I know with our grim team, everybody carries a minimum 12. But when the guys go over the edge, they will shed carabiners to the folks that are doing the rigging. And they will generally hand them somewhere between five to seven carabiners, which leaves about five five on their system. It's very unscientific, but it seems to be the, the number, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was just like, it was just a trial. It was a trial and error. Hey, let's, let's try this in today's training. I'm going to throw X amount of carabiners on there. Well, 30 or 10, five, 10 minutes into it. I need more carabiners. Well, we're going to have to add more. And by the end of the day, it just got to the point where I was like looking down, like, you know, five seems to be the common number when I come out or I go to unpack my harness that I have five carabiners hanging. So let's just rock with that. And it's, it seems to be the golden number. You know, uh, like you said, in, in, at Grimp Day, we obviously carried more. I think I had seven or eight on me at all times. But plus I have a couple, um, you know, Dyneema lanyards and a, a VT pressic on the other side. They have carabiners on there as well. But like you said, those are easily sheddable. Pop them off, lay them on the ground, put them back in your bag, hand them to somebody else. So, but if I needed those, I could always rob those from those those lanyards uh, to grab more if I needed
0: yeah and i mean i think that's that's a good clarification when i say we got a dozen carabiners on us there might only be four or five free yeah like you, you can steal but yeah everything's things are attached your basics clipped on to you your yep. uh, handle the sender or um so your control descent device clipped to you whatever yeah. yeah um i got a couple uh left field uh kind of sideways questions for you and you said you've been 14 years in the fire service is that right uh, 12 years yes twelve. Yep. so we're talking right around 2099
1: no 2010
0: 2010, 2010. sorry yeah my math yeah that's why i'm a fireman um, <laughs> do you feel i mean everybody talks about the fire service and that the lack of change at times i can take a look and tell you that the way we train people in 2020 is very similar to the way we train people in Mid 1990s, because I was around you in both of those eras. Do you think, based on, I mean, you're almost a generation different than me, that the training structure, the training matrix, the training, you know, the uh, best word for it, the, the way the training is laid out is still relevant for a newer generation of rescuers?
1: You know, I think I think I think the beauty, I think the beauty and the curse of let's say the NFPA rope technician courses. I think we do our students a disservice because we they, we put them through a forty or fifty hour class, depending on where you go, and they come out going, "I'm a rope tech," and they think that they can handle all these problems, right? And to, to my argument to that is we, we put through people, you're a fire officer, I, I'm, I'm just a backstepper and, that, and that's fine because I have, I have the most fun with none of the responsibility. But you, you as an officer wouldn't take somebody that you just put through a, a 10 week or six month academy at three o'clock in the morning with somebody hanging out the window on the backside of a fire building, you wouldn't get let send them by themselves to go throw a ladder and make that rescue. You would have probably a senior guy do that and i think we do a disservice to the fire but in the fire service with those classes is saying hey you've taken this class you know what you're doing when in reality i think the best that what the nfpa 1006 1670 classes are doing is without sounding morbid it's teaching you how not to die on a rope <laughs> it's teaching you just the basics of hey here's how the the broad strokes of how this stuff works we're not going to get into the fine details we're not going to get into any more advanced stuff it's just basic level if you will, fire academy training where you really learn how to be a fireman at the company level with your crew on the street, making runs and learning by doing instead of the academy setting where you're really learning, hey, this is a ladder. Here's how you throw it. But there's so many variances of trying to get it into a rear courtyard or into a courtyard building or to the backside of a building. And I think the same thing is like, hey, here is a, a descent control device. Here is the principles behind it. But we're not really going to teach you. We're going to teach you how to drive like a Honda Civic and not a Ferrari. If, if that, I, I don't know how you, you feel about that. But I think that we could do a better, a, a better job of setting our people up and letting them understand that you coming out of those 40 and 50 hour classes that you really are just scratching the surface and that you still are going to take years and years of time and energy and effort to get to a, 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 a more competent level.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I wish maybe the chiefs around would understand that we get a lot of people that come out of a 40 or 50 hour class and they do it once and they're certified for life. And five years later, they figure they can throw them on a rescue and go, Hey, well, you took the class five years ago. You should know what you're doing. Yeah.
1: And I just I think that's an unrealistic expectation. You know, you, as well as anybody else in, in the rope world knows that this is a very perishable skill. And if you don't think about it, for a couple of weeks, couple or a month or so, things are going to start disappearing. You're like, and you'll just sit there having to roll through the Rolodex in your brain, trying to remember what you used to know. And I, th- I think it's a great start, but I think we need to push past that. I don't know if there should be advanced level training or if we should take more responsibility at the company level. Because it, it, it seems like over and over again, and at every fire department, like once a year, we're going to do a high line Once a year we're going to do pickoffs and then we're going to do a knot tying anchor lap. And then that's good. That's just like checking the boxes and we'll go to next year, but we're never going to really get into any advanced, knot craft, or we're never going to get into any advanced anchoring or different ways. You know, we're like, Hey, I, you know, I I think it was four or five years before I ever even did an ARB, ARB scenario as a fireman. And like we rolled up and I thought I was a pretty competent rope guy. And then I was like, yeah, I don't know. what I don't know what's going on. I have no idea. Because like the anchoring, you know, bottom-based anchoring is different and versus, you know, putting friction savers and how to manipulate using the throw bag and getting that in place or retrievable anchors. And it's just, you know, I didn't even know retrievable anchors were a thing until a couple of years ago when I'd been tying knots and, you know, being a rope, an uh, FPA rope tech since 2014. And don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to, to, to run anybody down the road. I had wonderful instructors that do it did it put on a great class and still do and they laid a great foundation but i just think that we don't dive deep enough i think we just check the boxes of what NFPA says is good enough and we take that at face value when really it's just the it's just the gate of 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 what's out there
0: it's interesting you say that too i mean we did some scenarios in my department and i'm not going to try to throw anybody under a bus here but it was a confined space scenario we threw a little h2s into it it was a uh a pumping station for a sewer uh, pump station in the city. And so we had HAZ there, we had rescue. And the decision was made to put a couple rescuers into the space to do this. And they put a couple of more of the junior people in there. And during the debrief, I just brought it up as a conversation piece and said, as an officer, we're not, I'm not allowed to send a team into a structure fire anymore, where I am, without a least a written officer that can do can assess conditions and provide me tactical feedback of the conditions on the ground and make decisions kind of independently if required. Yet here we are in a confined space scenario. And I think we see this a lot with rope rescue. We'll throw our junior guys over the edge throw our junior guys, girls in the space, in the trench, insert your rescue problem here under the collapse, whatnot. And I said, do we need to put someone in there that can make tactical decisions that has the wherewithal and the experience to do it. And it actually caused quite a bit of debate just around the, <laughs> the post-incident analysis, the scenario analysis that we were doing, because it's not really thought of, it's not thought of as a fire. Yet it's an IDLH atmosphere, or simulated one in this case, that we're inside wearing air. So it's the exact same parameters as a fire, it's just as you know, dangerous or not dangerous, whichever way we want to look at it, as a fire yet we think of it differently and is is that something that's happening across like is that happening in your department as well or is this you know what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah, i don't i don't know if i've ever really thought about it that way i mean we putting somebody down there that's kind of can, has the ability to take a step back and make a decision based on the the 10,000 foot view I, I don't if if the space allows it i think it's a great idea i mean putting somebody in the place to watch out for the overall safety i i don't i don't see why that would be a problem i think it's it's, it's actually a really
0: good idea mark i, I really enjoy that
1: something well, for that me is, a ponder.
0: it's one of those things where it has to be space dependent this particular space 30 feet deep very big um they lost comms, so we had two junior people down there and i was down in the space as the evaluator or the scenario you know support and uh of course, you put someone with less than a year on the job into a space and lose comms. What's their number one concern at that point? Reestablishing comms, because that's what they've been taught in fire school, reestablish comms. Yep. know, you had an, you know, an acting or something like that, officer or an office, you know, a written officer down there, they would look up and go, I can see the edge person. Maybe I go to a simplex channel. Maybe I just work on hand signals. But I'm not going to spend five minutes down here trying to reestablish comms because I know without going to a simplex or doing something different with a repeater, I'm not getting comms off a trunk system 30 feet in a hole. Right. But it's, you know, where does that experience it? Is that something that has to be now incorporated into this? Do we need people going over the edge that have that sort of experience? Is it fair to ask those junior people to do this work? and the pause <laughs> you because you you
1: you bring up a good point um you know back to the communication issue i think i think it i think it goes back to being what's the environment and what if i can see the guy and i can communicate within that the communications issues isn't that big of a deal right hey like you point to your ear or make hand signals and you, you can work it out but i think you know work still has to get done right yeah. Even if you if, you know, we I said it a minute ago, Mo, Murphy's going to get his vote somewhere along the way. It may not be today, maybe tomorrow it may be the next one or it may never happen. But at some point, Murphy's going to get his vote and something's going to go wrong and you're going to have to work with something on the fly. But this, the work, the actual rescue still has to get done. Uh, if the space allows it. Yeah, I think that that might be a great idea because then that frees up. That frees up, I, it, for lack of better terms, it frees up the grunts to do their job it allows the officer or, you know, division level commander or whatever to take care of those smaller problems and to figure out how to, to, to make that a non-issue while the work and the rescue is still taking place. You know, I, I, I said it a minute ago, I've never thought of it that, uh, that as being a possibility. And I, I think that's a, it's a great point and a great debate to have. I, I really do. Uh, it's kind of taking me back as my wheels are turning processing it all, but I, I think it's a, there may be some viability, especially if, you know, we had, I, we, we talked earlier before the podcast, we, we, we taught a rope tech class last week at, you know, normal 50 hours, 16, 70, 1006 class. And, and a lot of times we would have an instructor on a drop set nearby, just kind of watching. And they're in that overview spot. And, you know, the comment was made, Hey, it made me feel more comfortable. We had a guy that was a little nervous being on rope. And there was a comment, that was made like, hey, having you there watching me and making sure I'm not making mistakes really made me feel comfortable and helped me push through some issues. And, you know, it's kind of the same thing. If you if you think about it, it's just in an operational context. You're putting somebody there to oversee and to deal with smaller problems before they the this, this snowball effect really has the ability to take
0: off and become a huge problem down the road. I don't think it's a bad idea, Mark. I, I, I kind of like it. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously situational space. There's a whole bunch of dependence on that. But to make your comment on the drop set too, one of the folks over in Europe, Xavier, had mentioned about throwing drop sets down, and he goes, "To me, that's also the writ line." Yeah, if I send someone down a hole or you know over the edge and something goes wrong, I have the ability to put another rescuer into play as writ. Yeah, and you well, know if that, there's a problem that
1: a- with that system, your your original rescuer has the ability to get out of there, like we said, with their ability to climb or send to get up and out of the situation or down if that if that's what the situation is absolutely yeah no
0: i I like that it's a good point so we've covered everything we were supposed to cover i think is there any other comments or concerns questions from you i I think
1: people just need to just give it some thought think about when we have you know the fire service were spoiled it's you know we talk about at least me and our, my friends and the people we I hang out with, it. it's it's nice to have that 60,000-pound fire truck with 500 horsepowers that can carry all of your gear for you. But it, having it there in a bag doesn't mean that it's readily available. And th- spend some time building out a kit of minimum things. Like, hey, I'm going to take five carabiners, a basic with a roll clip, and two extra anchor slings, Dyneema or – VT process or whatever, because I, I think I may need these and understand the things and the capabilities that equipment um, has and its uses to understand the principles that you may need. Hey, I may need to get myself or my, my victim up a couple of feet. How am I going to accomplish that? There's easy ways to do it, and there's always hard ways. So try to – I think if you spend some time with – your kit in the firehouse or your SAR team or your industrial rescue team thinking about the things that you have and what advantages it could be um to you over the edge it it can solve a lot of problems for you without having to that you can seamlessly fix them going forward or when they when they pop up Um, you know I, i think i think you said it earlier we you don't know what you don't know and if you don't spend time looking outside of your own uh realm like the, whether it's the fire service the arb industry or rope access i think you if you do spend some time looking out you will find a lot of uh lot of techniques and things that will help you along your way so i think i think if we spend more time looking at other industries and cross-pollinating like you said we'll all be better rope technicians in the long run
0: well there you go you, you just brought up another idea like you talked a bit earlier about some sort of advanced training after you are at fpa four day course, two days rescuer specific, two days rigor specific, maybe five days, one day team lead specific or something where there you go. Like you take some of those advanced concepts and change them up.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it's, we just got to do a better job of targeting and, or I think we as at least the American fire Service, we got to do a better job of not, of not accepting the fact that one 40 hour class is going to be the end all be all for all of our rope training. Then we need to take classes from other industries, you know, i rope access, take a sprat, la, sprat level one. You know, I, I spent that 40 hour class and I, I never felt more comfortable on a rope, even though I'd been on rope for years and years and years until after that class. Even though I'd done a lot of those classes or a lot of those skills before, the way it's presented and the way that it's taught, I think it's 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 a great thing, and I think especially people that are that are going to be going over the edge in a rescue situation, I think it's a great even if it's just a level one. I think it's a great skill set in a class to take uh, for the fire service to send their people through, and you know that the 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 idea of workshops. There's a ton of people out there. You guys do workshops. Uh, we've put on a couple of workshops. Plenty of other companies do. Go and learn. Just keep pushing forward. Don't accept that one certificate is going to be the end all be all.
0: That's so true, and I mean, as much as I'd love to say, go and take all you know courses from Red River or Ronan or Peak or Vertical or whomever. I'm also saying go take them from a few different people because the way you teach something, the way I teach something, might be different. The concept behind it might be different. They, you know, and it just gives you more options when you're on rope.
1: Absolutely, and and don't discourage, uh, you know, don't discount YouTube. YouTube's a great place to go and watch other people do same skills that you've already learned, just to pick up those different. um I'm not saying don't go, don't don't just watch YouTube and just think you're a rope tech, but if you've learned a skill, watch how other people do it. Like you said, there's a plenty of people. You guys put out content, Elevated Peak, all the people you mentioned above, and even more, especially overseas. There's tons of content out there if you look hard enough to find it, and you know, you maybe not, you maybe not find something that you were looking for, but you may catch something with your eye that, hey, I never thought about this piece of gear. What is that? Go find out, figure out, it may be the solution to one of your problems.
0: Yeah, for certain. Um, That's a good point. If you've got a problem, someone else has probably had it before.
1: Yeah, there's very few original ideas anymore, especially in the rescue world. Yeah, that's true. So anything else you want to throw in here, Tyler? Mark, I appreciate your time and giving me the opportunity to be on here. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Well, I hope you, you uh, don't get snowed in too much and you don't have to spend too much working a shovel the rest of the week.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I got to drive back down We'll see. But like I said before this, between the floods now and the snow and the essential travel on routes only, it makes it always makes it sporty to drive down. You never know, quite know what you're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps things interesting, right? Exactly. Well, thank you very much for coming on. All right, Mark. I appreciate it.